Welcome, everyone, and how are you doing? Hope you're having a wonderful day. This is the Intellectual Freedom Course and Podcast, where for about two months now, we've been looking at some of the greatest minds to ever walk the planet Earth. I'm Dr. David Hopkins, Humanities Professor, uh, your host and guide through this through this uh, lesson here, and this week, we're going to have no exception. We're going to continue studying some of the greatest minds, and, and this week it's actually Siddhartha Gautama, also known simply as Buddha, the founder and inspiration behind Buddhism. But before we get there, let me just briefly welcome anyone new in the description of the podcast. You can find a link to join the Intellectual Freedom Course. It's 100% free, I promise. Uh, I want, nor do I expect anything from you, but registering for the class will get these lessons that you found just sent directly to you every Friday. Uh, we are reading from a amazing anthology from Readings in Ethics, Moral Wisdom, Past and Present. And I do, I, I recommend getting the book and reading the chapter we're discussing. These chapters are not long, by the way. Uh, I would say they average around 15 to 20 pages is all. So I'm, I'm not... It's not an expectation to pick up a massive and in, in reading four, five, six hours a week. It, it doesn't work like that. So highly recommend getting that. And then also, of course, engaging in the discussions or even, heck, read read some of the additional resources of any of these topics really catch your attention. You know, you can almost think of it like going to college without paying any tuition. But the wisdom literature genre that we are uh, in right now it's so deep and it's so broad and yes so very important really for all of us to well i guess you would say life in general and finding your own path to a moral ethical fulfilled existence so i truly hope you'll sign up join along uh, with me as we as we keep going these podcasts those of you that have been around i, I don't script them out i just kind of sit and talk uh with you on these topics so with that, let's let's go ahead and, and get going. We're actually in chapter number eight. And oh, by the way, you don't have to have the book uh, if you're just tuning in for the first time. I mean, this this podcast is going to give all the some amazing facets of Buddhism and how you can actually apply Buddhism to your life. So, uh, as we go through this, let's let's jump right into Buddhism. The key figure, the towering person that stands out here is Siddhartha Gautama, also known as Buddha. It's still debatable, though, but he's believed to have lived around the 5th century BC. And he was the son of an Indian king. He was, he was born in what is now Nepal and traveled and taught his entire life in India, especially eastern India. It should not, as we get going, be lost on any of us that he was born of nobility. He would have been a king, a wealthy ruler, and he had every type of privilege one could have ever dreamed of wanting to have. Yet, yet he gave it all up. He gave it up to pursue things bigger and more important than material wealth and power, which would have been given to him as a birthright. That it should not be lost on any of us that after giving up all his privilege and power, he then lived the life of a nomadic monk and teacher and really had no material wealth to speak of his entire life. You know, lots of people talk a really big game. 
few have the ability, the discipline, the passion, the willingness to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. And the great Buddha was one of them. By the way, in this podcast, I'm, I am going to stick with the simple common name of Buddha. It's just easier. But just wanted to get that side note out there for any of the Buddhist scholars or practitioners out there. We're just going to keep it super simple here. So who is this guy anyway? He was a mystic and a prophet. Uh, more than more than a philosopher, he taught a way of life. And he relied on his own spiritual experience to form his perceptions of reality in the universe. And his fame has led to many different labels over the centuries. Uh, he was birthed from divinity, or he's a spiritual leader, or a type of a saint, or a sage, to, to just name a few of the labels he's been given. But the traditional stories about Buddha's life have come down to us essentially as parables. Since it had been prophesied that he would become a powerful spiritual leader from birth and had an inclination for meditation, his father was really concerned and he wanted nothing to do with these prophecies. And so he constantly tried to influence his son and he surrounded Buddha with pleasures to try and dissuade him from entering into a religious life. But in spite of this, as the story goes, on three successive days, when he was 29 years old, he escaped from the sheltered life of his father and had a profound experience. Beyond the beauty and the comfort of the palace that his father had orchestrated this perfect world for him, Buddha went out beyond the walls and he saw an old man, a sick man, and a corpse. And from that moment forward, he learned something and something became very ingrained in him that all men are going to suffer and eventually they're going to die. So he, he went through that process for three days. And then on the fourth day, he saw an ascetic and understood or believed at that point that the way of overcoming suffering was just to give up worldly pleasures. Now, I need to stop right here for just one second to, to answer a question that many of you might be going going through your mind. What, what the heck you mean he saw an ascetic? Who, who is an ascetic? And what in the world is that? Well, in Indian culture, it is an individual that practices very strict self-denial of, of material pleasures and as a, as a means or a way of personal and especially spiritual discipline. It's a... The, these people, the ascetics, are they're highly disciplined. They forego the material comforts, the even the most basic material comforts of life, in an attempt, in a goal, in a, in a desire to reach a higher spiritual plane of being by foregoing anything from the material world. So, the next day, it said that Buddha left his kingdom, left his wife, left his newborn son in search of a path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Now, talk about lofty goals. If there's a go big or go home mentality, Buddha definitely had it. And for the next six years, he lived the life of an ascetic. He was studying, he was fasting, he was meditating. 
But, you know, it just never it, it never got him to that goal of the deepest levels of understanding uh, that 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 thing that he was striving to figure out was how to end suffering in the world. And the aesthetic life, it, it just didn't get him there. So finally, almost on the point of starvation, actually, he realized that the extreme physical deprivations do not provide the path to enlightenment. And he symbolically accepted a bowl of rice and gruel from a herdswoman. And from that point forward, he left that life behind. And he decided to follow what's known as the middle path or a middle practice that avoided the extremes. And these extremes were one of one, overindulgence, and then number two, of just completely depriving yourself of of all material things. In fact, the name Buddha refers to one who has attained the highest state of intellectual and ethical perfection that can be achieved through human means. The term Buddha, it actually it means enlightenment or awakened. Someone who knows and refers to someone who is beyond suffering. And so, at this point, Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, is dead and the great Buddha has emerged. It's actually rather amazing that at the age of 35, he could meditate for 49 days straight. And he achieved this supreme or complete state of enlightenment. And after this enlightenment, the Buddha, he devoted himself to teaching basically for the rest of his life all that he had learned up into his death at the age of 80 years old. These teachings basically consisted of the middle path or the way. uh, And we'll get into that, some specifics of that teaching in a bit. But the way or the middle path... uh, it consists it consists of of teaching right conduct uh, which leads to enlightenment but also provides would which is important for all of us a, a practical code for living an ethical life there're definitely definitely similarities with the concepts of the tao which we just finished discussing with our ancient chinese sages but these are these these similarities, they often just get overlooked in, in traditional literary criticism, probably because the theology of Buddhism has a very complicated history. But the, the Buddha saw religion as a pragmatic solution to the problems of human suffering and death. I want to say that one more time. He saw religion as a pragmatic solution to the problems of suffering and death. And he emphasized experience over doctrine which is exactly what we've been talking about when we look at Confucius, Lao Tse, and and Mencius in China. But let's talk just for a moment on the doctrines of Buddhism. Here the middle path is key. And it's complicated, but but stay with me here a minute. In, In Buddhism, perception is incredibly important. As there needs to be a very careful evaluation of things that exist and the view that things do not exist. Reality in essence, is a kind of illusion or projection which has no hold on someone who sees it accurately. Once you can see it accurately, now you're reaching a higher level of consciousness. Now, this can be really hard to grasp, but 
But we do, in essence, create our own reality in many ways if we want to just stop and think about it. For example, I can have a high-speed, hard-charging, completely dedicated student in one of my classes. They have a goal of a 4.0 GPA, maybe valedictorian, or maybe going to law school or medical school or, or whatever. I mean, they their perception is that this education is the key to everything and they and their actions speak that on how they study how they show up to class how they work hard at at doing the things they needed to be successful in college and for these students reality is the most important thing in life is graduating college at a very very high level i mean they're completely dedicated to it but let's take that very same student let's say sadly the student gets diagnosed with a stage four brain tumor and the doctors give them four, three months to live. That reality that they previously had based their life on, completely dedicated to their studies and their career in the hopes of greater things beyond, that gets shattered. And what was important, college, fades away. And what becomes important is, I don't know, depends on the person. Maybe it's relationships, maybe it's family, and maybe just their health, trying to recover and get over the top of it. See, our mental states, our perceptions, in many ways, are flawed. We create our perceptions of reality in many ways. And, and Buddha saw this, and he came to the conclusion that us humans, you and I, we can only be released from suffering in this world by developing an awareness of reality called mindfulness, which sees reality as it is. And when we get there, we then have the right view of the world. Buddha saw that the immediate cause of our suffering arises from attachment to the fake self that we create or society helps bend us and manipulate us towards and it's really nothing more than a jumbled bunch of different ever-changing hopes desires and passions and greeds or whatever happens to be driving at us it's it's always shifting and it's always moving on us and 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 we all have different passions and vices and drives that uh every every person is a little unique in that regard but the Buddhist who attains enlightenment dissolves completely this world-focused, society-focused, your own inner images you create on social media, that self. And ultimately, in Buddhism, you enter what an emptiness. And this results in nirvana, which is nothing more than a state of full bliss, peace, fulfillment and annihilation of the material world and it frees the soul there's so much you can study and read on your own and, and for probably the rest of my life i could go deeper and deeper into the nuances of buddhism meditation and the practices and, and never do a different type of podcast ever but for this lesson i want i want to focus on one of the main one of the most fascinating and important pillars of buddhism they are called the Four Noble Truths. And if you understand the Four Noble Truths, you understand much of what the great Buddha had to say and much of what he spent most of his time teaching for his you know, 40-some years or 35-some years of, of teaching. So 
here they are. First, just going to summarize them, and then we're going to analyze them. So the first noble truth is suffering. There is suffering in the world. The second noble truth is understanding the causes of suffering. The third noble truth would be how to end suffering. And then the fourth noble truth, uh, the path that will free you from the suffering. Sounds simple enough, right? So let's dive into them. Noble truth number one. The first noble truth is often translated as life is suffering. Now, gee, that sounds like a real downer, right? Life is nothing more than suffering. Sort of like the bumper sticker, life sucks and you die. Well, it's actually quite the opposite. And you can take this noble truth as a wonderful thing that life is suffering. So much of the confusion on Buddhism is, is, is and, and this first noble truth, is due to that pesky translation problem that we've run into multiple times as we've been studying these ancient texts of trying to fit our English words into other languages and, and the translation just doesn't fit nicely and perfectly. So the English basic translation is life is suffering. But, uh, but according to many well-respected monks and scholars, uh, a, a more accurate translation of the first noble truth would be life is incapable of satisfying us or or not being able to bear or withstand anything. Other scholars will replace suffering with stressful. So but but anyway you cut it, the fact is life is temporary, it's conditional, and it's compounded by material things that do not and will not last. Heck, even things in life that are precious and enjoyable, they're, they're going to end eventually, no matter what, guaranteed. We need to accept the fact that good or bad, right or wrong, everything, yes, everything in the world is fleeting and loss leads to suffering. So the Buddha was not saying that everything about life is relentlessly awful. He spoke and wrote about many types of happiness, such as the happiness of family life. But as we look more closely at the first noble truth, we see that it touches everything in our lives, including good fortune and happy times, because they are fleeting. Buddha, Buddha taught that our biological being, that physical shell that, that you have, that I have, to carry us around is ultimately suffering. The living human being that you and I are made of, that form up our senses, our ideas, our feelings, emotions, and consciousness, is fleeting as well. Our body can and will finally break down. We will suffer from it, and ultimately, we're going to die. There's literally no escaping this fact. So this first noble truth of suffering is real. And it's maybe the most real of all realities on the planet Earth. I think here would be a great idea to just go ahead and, and read a short passage. Because if you don't get the idea that life is suffering, all the rest becomes sort of weird. A kind of cosmic silliness as... Most people obviously think, well, I don't want any suffering. Why, why would I ever practice a way of living that embraces suffering? 
So let's just throw in a quote here uh, that bridges this first noble truth we talked about and then dives into noble truth number two, which we're, which we're going to break down next. So, so here's a little quote um, from inside the writings of Buddha. Quote, And what is the origin of suffering? It's craving, which brings renewal of existence, is accompanied by delight and lust, and delights in this and that, that is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, and craving for non-existence. This is called the origin of suffering. And what is the cessation of suffering? It is the remind it is the reminder that fading away and ceasing, the giving up, the relinquishing, the letting go, and the rejecting of that same craving. This is called the cessation of suffering, end quote. So this takes us to noble truth number two. The second noble truth teaches that the cause of suffering is greed or desire. The actual word from the early scripture is tanha, and this is more accurately translated as thirst or craving. But you get the point. We are continually searching for something outside ourselves to make us happy it's a common truth and 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 to subdue this passion or desire it's no easy task some people are better at it than others but the fact remains no no matter how successful we are it's very hard to be satisfied the second truth is not telling us that we must give up everything we love to find happiness the real issue here is more subtle it's we have to be careful to of the attachment to what we desire that gets us in trouble. It's the attachment to these desires that get us in trouble. If if we're not careful, it can get us in very big trouble. Stories abound in history and modern culture of greed and corruption, bringing down people who seemingly have everything on the surface, but yet it was still not enough. The Buddha taught that this thirst grows from ignorance of the self. We go through life grabbing one thing after another to get a sense of security about ourselves. But it doesn't actually work. We, we attach not only to the physical things, but also to the ideas and opinions about ourselves and the world around us. And we grow frustrated. Then the world doesn't behave the way we think it should. And our lives don't conform to our expectations. Then anger, resentment, blame, or, or even worse, violence then ensues. So Buddha urged a radical change in perspective. Our tendency to divide the universe into me versus everything else has to be eliminated or at least brought to a bare minimum. Over time, if one practices the way of Buddhism with focus and discipline, then a person can enjoy life's experiences without judgment and bias or manipulation or any of the other mental barriers we erect between ourselves and what's real. But make no mistake, the root cause is greed and physical passions or desires. So let that sink in. That if you can eliminate or vastly reduce greed, physical passion, or desire, you can move yourself to a higher plane of being. 
Then we go on to the third noble truth. So if the first noble truth tells us what the illness is, life is suffering, and the second noble truth tells us what causes the illness, greed and desire, then the third noble truth is the cure to the illness. So drum roll, please. The cure to all that ails the world is stop clinging and attaching. I know, you're probably feeling a little bit let down uh, from that solution. Uh, But stop clinging and attaching. Stop clinging and attaching. And your next question is like, okay, so how in the world, what, what am I, how do I do that? The fact is that it cannot be accomplished by an act of your sheer willpower. It's impossible to just vow yourself or New Year's resolution yourself into stopping your clinging and attachment. Uh, okay, sure. You know, just to say, oh, okay, I won't, I won't crave anything anymore. That, that, that that's not going to work. That because the conditions that give rise to that craving are still going to be present underneath. So Buddha himself, he figured this out. Remember when I was given kind of the background history? For the first seven years, he tried to deny himself all pleasures. He tried to stop clinging and and attaching through his sheer willpower for seven years when he was living life as an ascetic. And he denied himself all pleasures of life. Heck, he was almost on the verge of starvation. He was, uh, I guess you'd say, sort of, sort of trying to will himself into enlightenment. I'm going to become enlightenment. It didn't work. And if it didn't work for him, I'm pretty sure it won't work for you or for me in the long run either. And if you recall a few minutes ago when we were talking about that second noble truth and the problem that we cling to things that we believe will make us happy or keep us safe, those desires, those greeds, those passions, uh, it's always going to fail. There's no doubt about it. You know, the new car gets old. The bigger house isn't big enough. Or even maybe feels way too big and empty after all your kids and family have left you. There's always better jobs out there. There's always more power, etc., etc. So, grasping for one thing after another, it's never going to satisfy you. At least not for long. Because it's all impermanent. It will go away eventually. So it is only when we see this and embed this into our mind for ourselves that we can finally stop grasping for it. And when we do see it and we actually believe it and internalize it, then simply letting go becomes easy the cravings will disappear on their own accord. So the Buddha taught that through expanding your perspective and seeing all the stuff from the material world for what it is, a distraction really, along with proper meditative practices and reading and filling your minds with good, proper, ethical things, you can put an end to all the cravings. You really can. Jumping off the hamster wheel chase after satisfaction, after satisfaction, 
is becoming enlightened or awakened. This enlightened being exists in a state called nirvana. Here, social media mean posts don't touch you. Stress over politics or culture wars don't impact you. Being rich or powerful doesn't mean anything to you. When you reach this state of letting go of all the material things around you, you live in a state of knowing, you live in a state of understanding, and living in a way that the material world has lost its hold over you. You're free. You're literally 100% free. The, the material world and all this stuff that happen and swirl around us every single day, everything on the news, all the tragedies, all the drama, all the hate, all those things, it has no control over you anymore when you reach that state. I mean, I don't have to tell you what a powerful, powerful place to live mentally when all those things just roll off your back as if they mean nothing. Because in the end, Buddha says they don't. They don't mean anything. All that stuff is fleeting. Whether it's terrible bad or whether it's terrible good. So this brings us to the fourth noble truth. And really, this is what Buddha spent the last 45 or so years of his life mostly giving sermons on. And that was how to get on or stay on the path. Now, the roadmap to achieving nirvana is the eightfold path is what it's called. And, and unlike in many other religions, Buddhism has no particular benefit uh, to merely believing in a doctrine. What, what's the point? Just because you have faith in a doctrine, it doesn't mean anything in the, in the eyes of Buddha. Instead, the emphasis is on living the doctrine and walking the path. So it's probably not I it's probably not a mere coincidence that you know it's the eightfold path which walking is is an active it's an active verb it's it's a moving verb and and so the path is eight broad areas of practice that touches every single part of our lives it ranges uh, from many different things. I'm, I'm not going to go really deep into every single part of the Eightfold Path. You can obviously read them, and I have links provided in the additional materials that, that you can dive into as deep as you want. But it ranges from study to ethical conduct to what you do for a living to moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness. Every action of body and speech and mind are addressed by the Eightfold Path. It's a path of exploration and discipline to be walked for the rest of one's life. And you never get perfect at it, but you can constantly get better and better at it. And without the path, really, the first three truths would be nothing more than a theory. The practice of the Eightfold Path brings the doctrine into one's life, and, and it makes it bloom. It allows the ability to reach nirvana. And, and so if you're interested in this path, by all means, read through the book chapter uh, but if you really want to practice or study the Eightfold Path, it, it's a lifetime of spiritual practice to tap into your inner being at the deepest level so that you could ultimately reach nirvana. So let me shift gears one last time as we wrap up here. Historically, Buddhism was one of many schools of, I guess you call anti-Brahmic or anti-Hindu thought. 
which arose in reaction to the very strict orthodoxy in India. I guess you could almost make it in in some ways similar to the Protestant Reformation that happened in Europe um, in reaction to Roman Catholicism. But Buddha, he did reject the caste system of Hinduism, uh, the reliance on Hindu ritual. He found some of the ritual kind of shallow. Uh, it was more a social convention than anything. And the emphasis on the Vedas, the Vedas or the scriptures. But 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 that's not but that doesn't mean that there there were not similarities in between Buddhism and Hinduism. And and I want to just go over some of them quickly. So Buddhism is like is like Hinduism in teaching that the world is mostly an illusion. That our senses and our desires they chain us to a painful cycle of birth and death that souls migrate through higher or lower levels of existence and that liberation is possible through enlightenment. So that concept of karma, what comes around goes around, uh, that idea and, and reincarnation are common to both bodies of the doctrines. The karma that attaches to our acts has inevitable consequences. So if if you have if you do things and you that lead to good consequences must follow that that the good acts and and the bad consequences follow bad acts either immediately in the future or in another lifetime if you are a giving caring kind person you will get that returned back to you if you are loud obnoxious arrogant people are going to give that right back to you it would be amazing if our politicians understood this idea of karma a little better they scream and yell and and mock the other side and then expect other people the other side to listen to them it's crazy but Let's let's not get in go down that rabbit hole of politics right now and, and let's let's talk about like reincarnation. Uh it's an older idea, provides a mechanism, much like hell, uh, for the punishment of wrongdoers. For example, so the fool who's given himself over to misconduct of body or speech or mind, when they die they may reappear as an animal that feeds on grass, or in the company of an animal that feeds on dung or crap, or in the company of maggots and flies. The wise man, though, conversely, who's given himself over to good conduct, reappears in a happy destination. So the main difference between Buddhism and Hinduism is that the Buddha does not put an eternal and unchanging soul or a separate transcendent God independent from the rest of the universe in the Buddhist doctrine. So there, there's no separate person or God to worship. You know, if you take Judaism, Christianity, Islam, there is a all-powerful, single, monotheistic God who sits on high, ruling the entire universe. That doesn't exist in Buddhism. Uh, critics, though, that will complain that Buddhism rests on a worldview that is way too negative, too selfless, and too passive. The Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, for example, would argue that there is evil in the world that needs to be stamped out. And it's their 
obligation, their moral obligation to involve themselves, whether that would be invasion or war, political manipulation, burning people at the stake, or, or overthrowing an evil government in the name of God. Uh, Buddhists would not get so actively involved in such a thing. That would just be part of the things that you would need to let go of. So Buddhism, for many critics, is just far too passive of a worldview to be effective in our, in our modern society. The larger the moral issue posed by Buddhism, not to be a part of ordinary life, uh, that's a problem for some people. The goal in Buddhism is to transcend the problems of the physical world, not to control the material world or fix the material world. So the Buddhists would, would say, why in the world do I care about these evil Democrats and Republicans and, and, and getting involved trying to get rid of this candidate or that candidate? What's the point? I, my goal is to get beyond them, not to try and control them or fix them because I cannot fix them, nor can I control them. Yet the Buddhist tradition, it, it does have a comprehensive system of practical ethics. So let's not pretend it's like all hands off, anything goes. That's, that's definitely not the case. Uh, inside and outside the monastic Buddhist life, uh, which, which emphasizes those four all-embracing virtues, uh, it has great power. And, and you know, they some of the some of the most important aspects of buddhism are charity kindness in speech service to the public and equality those are wonderful amazing things that that can become embedded into pretty much every government if they if they really wanted to to try and do it and most certainly you can embed them in your own personal life it also condenses its basic moral teaching into a number of very specific precepts uh, that apply to everyone. And I'll just go over, you know, some of these precepts uh, as, as we're getting close to wrapping up here. Uh, so, number one, refrain from harming living beings. Number two, refrain from what is not freely given. Three, refrain or stop or stay away from engaging in sexual misconduct. Four, refrain from using false speech. And five, refrain from using intoxicating drinks and drugs. So although you may never want to become a Tibetan monk, you can still in so many ways apply the lessons and practice practices of Buddhism into your life. There is immense value in transcending our material world that can positively impact our lives. And, and so... With Buddhism, it, it is most definitely worth looking at, and it is most definitely worth trying to find a way to embed so many of these teachings into our life, because there is great power in that. So I hope you enjoyed this lesson. I, I know I truly enjoyed studying it with you. If, if you have any questions, you know, if you have if you have subscribed to the course, when you get those links, you know, you can respond directly to me. Uh, if you're not comfortable posting comments in the forum area, you just have to register with the Substack link. Uh, and, and then you'll have open access to me if you have any questions on any of this stuff that we're studying right now. Uh, as usual, I included some additional readings beyond just our the textbook uh, 
that that we're diving through. So so go ahead and look into those if you want to read deeply on that eightfold path or or any of the teachings of Buddhism. It's amazing, amazing uh, uh, rules to live by. Um, as usual, I as I said, those those additional uh, textbook readings are there. But next week we're we're going to go ahead and we're going to move on. We're going to move on to Aesop's Tales, and we are going Greek. Maybe the greatest culture to influence philosophy, morality, and ethics than any other culture we have seen in humanity. I mean, that's a bold statement. But as we start diving into the Greeks, I think you're gonna. I, you, I think you may agree with a lot of what I'm talking about here. I think what we what we start studying next, it literally should be required of every human being on the planet Earth. <laughs> yeah, that sounds high, like a lot of hyperbole, but still, the Greeks they are at the pinnacle in so many ways, and and I can't wait. Can't wait to explore the Greeks with you. That was actually my one of my key areas of emphasis in my doctoral dissertation, and, and so I am pumped to move on to the Greeks. But with that, I hope you have yourself a wonderful week. Hope you enjoyed studying Buddhism, and uh, we'll be back again next Friday. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you. Bye.